Hey, Valley Church, thanks for clicking in. Uh, real quick, right off the bat, I just want you to think of somebody that uh, you can celebrate. And we're gonna celebrate them just by shouting out their name. Somebody in your life who is, is like somebody you're excited to see, somebody you're excited to be around, somebody when you get together with them, you just have such a good time. And I just wanna give you permission right now, if you're watching with somebody, uh, you don't have to shout the name of somebody who is with you. We get it, you're together, you're where you are together, and I want you to like have permission to just shout. Maybe it's gonna be the name of a, a childhood friend or, or somebody you work with, somebody you don't see often, or somebody you see every single day. Uh, is that person in your mind already? I hope so, ready? Shout it out, one, two, three. Jesus, I hope you said Jesus, right? Did everybody, no, I'm just kidding, it didn't have to be. Uh, for me, you know, I mean, it might be my wife, it's certainly Jesus, but, but when I was a kid, I had the best times with my cousins. They lived in Pennsylvania, I lived in Ohio, and it was like such a big deal when they would come to visit, because when they came to visit, it meant crazy amounts of food at my grandmother's house. It meant slumber parties. And my cousins, they were older than me. They were bigger than me. They were tall. I mean, these were just, to me, giants. And I looked up to them. And uh, when we would have overnights, they would tell me stories that were absolutely terrifying. It's crazy to think about as an adult. They, we'd get to bed and we'd pull the covers up and they would go, hey, Brandon, did you hear about the guy who broke out of prison last night? And I'd be like freaking out. But it, for some reason, just the anticipation of knowing they were going to mess with me and that we were going to hang out. And it was just going to be an epic few days of my cousins coming to town. Like I so looked forward to spending time with them. And I'll tell you this, nobody looks more forward to seeing somebody as much as an engaged couple looks forward to seeing each other on the wedding day. I mean, there's so much planning and preparation. And, and for some of us, we're just like, oh my goodness, can we just get behind all of the planning and the preparation? You know, for a lot of girls, a lot of girls are just kind of like, this is one of those moments that I have been waiting all of my life for. And, and so many guys are like, Jesus, please don't return just yet. The wedding's at three o'clock, please. Can you just wait until after the dinner, after the dance? I mean, I want you to come back, but not, not just yet. I mean, think about the anticipation and the celebration in those lives. And right now, actually, why don't you turn to Revelation chapter 19, because these 10 verses that we're going to look at today are filled with celebration. And we are talking a culmination of celebration of God's power in his righteousness. We're celebrating God's reign. And there is an incredible celebration of the marriage of the lamb. And it all starts right here in chapter 19, verse one. Check this out with me. After this, we just, let me just pause real quick. All, already, like Pastor Quentin did such a great job taking us through two weeks of understanding boundless and where we're heading uh, for this next year. But before we headed into vision week, like he was in the text, chapter 17 and 18, talking about the destruction of evil. I'm talking about the elimination of evil. So after this, after all that happened in chapter 17 and 18, John says, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven. And do you know what they were saying? They weren't just saying, they were celebrating. Here's what they said. Hallelujah, wherever you are, just say hallelujah. If you're in a crowded room, scream it out or at least whisper it. Hallelujah, they said. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. Like this is the biggest of deals, the biggest celebration. 
you know, God has, has judged those who have rejected the gift of salvation. God at this point has judged those who have rejected his son and his judgment, we see it in the text. His judgment is true. His judgment is righteous. His judgment is so right. It actually contributes to his glory. He's judged this notorious prostitute who's corrupted the earth. Like this, this is the end of evil. Like, like there is great rejoicing. Of course there's great rejoicing. Evil is gone. And they celebrate by shouting hallelujah. And what's really cool about this, like that's such a familiar Bible word, right? Hallelujah. We've heard it. We hear it all the time, you know, uh, in, in songs and especially in old hymns and around Christmas time. It just surfaces all over the place. But maybe you didn't know this. The word hallelujah, it only appears in the New Testament four times. Such a familiar word, and yet only four times in the New Testament. And let me tell you this, all four times happen right here in this chapter, in the first 10 verses that we're jumping into. And uh, let, me just, let me just show you something really cool here. Hallelujah, it's, it's really made up of two words. You know, let me just take you out of it because you always want to receive the praise, right? Like I do too, right? We'll just take the you out. And what hallelujah means, uh, hala and, and yah, which means praise. This means praise and yah is, is, is uh, short for Yahweh. So really the word hallelujah, it means praise God. It means praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. This is a robust crescendo of praise as a vast multitude is saying hallelujah praise God if you're taking notes I'd love it if you'd write this down like this is a celebration of salvation all right we saw it in the text but let me explain why I just used the word salvation because uh, while the text here it says this is a, a celebration as they say hallelujah of his salvation his glory and his power like the word salvation here is so much more than personal deliverance like this passage isn't just saying hallelujah because I get to be in eternity. It's like salvation has come. The saving and, and the reconciliation, the redemption is now here. It's more than just personal deliverance. It's a completion of a promise. It's, it's a unifying celebration and at the same time an elimination of evil and a, a display of how faithful and powerful God is. This is a celebration of salvation in the, the biggest way. Look back at our text. Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because, why? Because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he, he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with their sexual immorality and, and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. Like this is such a great moment. This chapter, it follows and finishes everything that we had seen in chapters 17 and 18. And Pastor Quentin, he, he walked us through the announcement of the destruction of Babylon. And here, Babylon is described as this notorious prostitute that corrupts and brings impurity. Uh, Babylon is... Uh, you know, this rebellious world, a rebellious culture. It's not just this place in the Old Testament. It's not just a symbol for those first century Christians for Rome. Like Babylon is like this secession of, of immorally corrupt, unfaithful, rebellious people and leaders and countries and governments and organizations and cultures that reject Jesus. Babylon's gone. This notorious prostitute has been put away. And then we hear this in verses three through six. A second time, they said, hallelujah. And her smoke ascends 
forever and ever. Like this, you might gloss over this if you're not reading the text slowly. Her smoke ascends forever and ever. The vast multitude, they continue to celebrate the destruction of all corruption. In this evil empire, Babylon, uh, anything that is against God and anything that is against the people of God here is avenged. And the fact that God judges and destroys this corruption, it actually contributes to his glory. There's great celebration. This destruction isn't temporary. This is a forever destruction. There's no opportunity to come back. There's no opportunity for people to be on the other side of eternity, not with God and say, yeah, I made a mistake. I need to, I need to get up and I need to get out of here. You know, Babylon's smoke ascends forever and forever. There will be, uh, uh, for those who reject Jesus, a suffering, a separation for eternity, eternal torment. Babylon, by the way, just as a reminder, like we're all living in Babylon. Like, you know, Babylon will continue to corrupt and to persuade and to seduce people away from God. You know, Babylon's not gone yet. That's kind of a good thing and a bad thing. It's bad because Babylon continues to persuade people away from God. But the good thing is there's still time. There's still time for the church to be the church. There's still time for the church to be truth and grace to a world in desperate need of Jesus. A world that has lost and hurting, looking for something to hope in. And Jesus is the only one to hope in. We get to carry that. And today there's still hope for those who are not yet following Jesus. But one day, one day God's mercy is going to run out. And this opportunity is going to be gone. It's going to be gone. Torment and separation will be forever and ever. And this vast multitude is not celebrating the harm of people. They're celebrating the righteousness of God. And they continue to celebrate. Look at verse 4. Then the 24 elders and, and the four living creatures, they fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne. You wonder what they said? I mean, they're getting ready to say it. You already know, but before we say it, I want you to write this down. Write this down also. Point number two, this is a celebration of God's worth. I had this professor in Bible college. My professor would all often say, how many of you, how many of you have worshiped God? Do you know that worship is worth-ship? And we were like, worth-ship, interesting. What? worship. We thought he was like saying it incorrectly, or maybe he just was from a different part of the country that he had this like dialect that, you know, maybe, maybe they just say it that way in Michigan because Michigan people are, you know, but like it's worth ship. And he said, you know, the root word of, of worship is from the old English, meaning worthy or, or honorable. And then that suffix ship uh, it's the state of being of, of whatever comes before it, right? So he was actually saying that worship means the state of being worthy. God is worthy. And what we see all through this text, as, as we see vast multitudes and the four living creatures and the elders worshiping, they're showing him worth. This is a worship, a state of being worthy. And God certainly is. He is worthy. That's why the elders are face down on their knees. And here's what they say. They say, amen. They say, hallelujah. And they continue on. A voice came from the throne. And this is what the voice said. Praise our God. 
which is hallelujah, right? Praise God. Uh, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great, they praise God. And then, then I heard something, John is saying, I heard something like the voice of vast multitudes, like the sound of cascading waters and, and like the rumbling of loud thunder. I mean, this is, this is a, a shout. This is a crowd. This is so big. The biggest celebration we can imagine. And this is what they said. Hallelujah. Because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. God reigns. He just displayed his power of salvation over everything. His power of destruction to sin, to his enemy, to the corrupt world. It's gone. It's done. And it's not really clear who specifically is saying and shouting all of these hallelujahs and amens and praise God and, and you know, God, the Lord Almighty, he reigns. But what is safe to say is that the elders, the elders and these four living creatures are celebrating that God is worthy. And the vast multitude, I'll tell you this, it's either saints shouting hallelujah or it's angels shouting shouts of praise or it's just a combination of all of that. Because these are all the servants of God who recognize his worthship. He's worthy. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. You know, we've said this in weeks past, but I just think this is a great reminder from our text. You might want to write this, jot this down. Like we were not created to consume worship. You know, uh, worship's not about us. It's, worship is not about me. It's not about my favorite song. It's not about my preferences. Worship is all about offering the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lord God, the Almighty, uh, praise and adoration and celebration and thanksgiving, like salvation and glory and power. It all belongs to Him and His judgments are true. His judgments are right. He is worthy. And just as a side note that, that comes in such a clear way right here within the text. And why don't you just flip over, jump to verse 10 with me. Because what John is writing down is actually being dictated by an angel. An angel is talking to John and John is just, he's just writing and jotting all of these hallelujahs in this praise scene. And, and somehow, some way, when the angel finishes dictating, John notices the angel. And in that very moment, with John just being so overwhelmed with everything he's hearing and writing, he sees the angel. And this is what happens. Then, in verse 10, then I fell down. John just says this, I fell down and I worshipped him. John falls to his knees and starts worshiping this angel. And let me just tell you this, when, when, when an angel is seen, I mean, and you can see this in Luke chapter 2, when the announcement of Jesus is made by these angels to these shepherds in a field, like the shepherds, they were just terrified. The angel actually had to pull back and just say, come on, we're, things are going to be fine. This is going to be great. We've got good news for you. Like seeing an angel, it's going to evoke a strong response and hear don't miss this. John falls to his knees and he starts worshiping the angel. And look at what the angel says. But the angel said to me, don't do that. Can you just feel that? The angel knew that in that moment, John was so overwhelmed, but that angel did not want to steal an ounce of glory from God the Almighty. He says, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly 
to the testimony of Jesus. Who do we worship? He says, worship God. Only worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This angel's like, come on, man, don't do this. Pull yourself together. Everything that you have been writing, everything that I have been dictating to you, I'm pointing people to Jesus and your writing should be pointing people to Jesus. It doesn't point to you. The angel's saying it doesn't point to me. We exist to share the testimony of Jesus with the world. So, just maybe in the margin, write this down. We weren't created to consume worship. You and I were not created to consume worship. I mean, even though we're drawn to worship, even though we're drawn to consume, we're drawn to the center of things, we weren't created, we were not created to consume that worship. Also, what we learn from verse 10 is we were not created to be worshipped. You and I love the center. We love attention. And even those of you who are extreme introverts and you're like, you have no idea who I am. I don't like to be the center. There's something in all of us that, that likes just receiving a certain kind of glory. And it might be different for you than it is for me than it is for somebody else. But that's our sin nature in action. We weren't considered, or we weren't, we weren't created to consume worship. We weren't created to be worshiped. Here's why we were created. You and I were created to be worshipers. That's why we exist, to worship God, to love God, to show God that He is worthy. He is worthy. You know, we see John in error here as he worships the wrong thing for just a moment. But yet we see this being lived out in, in the absolute best ways as the multitudes of saints and angels and elders and the four living creatures, they worship the Lord God, the Almighty. You and I, we need to be very intentional with the direction we point our worship because only one is worthy. Only one is worthy. Celebration continues in the text. If you're taking notes, I'd love it if you'd write down this third point. Celebration of the marriage of the Lamb is happening in the text. There's a feast that's happening. There's a wedding that is, is getting ready to happen. Like this, this is, this is so good. Starting in verse seven, uh, here's what John starts writing. He says, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. Uh, for, for the fine linen represented the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God, they're true. Like this is what's gonna happen. This angel said, this was given to me by God and it is true. It's a matter of fact, this is what's going to happen. And we see in the text, this bride, the church, preparing herself with fine linen doesn't matter what kind of linen like I'm not talking about it's not hemp it's not flaxy we don't care what the material the point is not the linen as much as it is about the purity about the presentation the picture of this bride is simple and pure and elegant which is in stark contrast to the prostitute the description we see of the prostitute in Revelation chapter 17 flashy full of attention-getting jewelry and, and swinging around some kind of gold cup filled with detestable things ready to consume. You know, the bride is the church. 
And those who have received their righteousness receive it from Jesus. There's nothing that we can create alone on our own. This righteousness is from God alone. And the bride, who is the church, is given this to where? We put on his righteousness. We see that all throughout the New Testament. You and I, as we give our lives to Christ, we get to put on his righteousness. This is a symbol of purity. This is a symbol of, of faithful perseverance and obedience to Jesus. You know, during a, a trip to Israel I took uh, some time ago, uh, my friend Steve Hudson, who was leading this trip, he, he just put me right in the middle of the text, and I loved it. We're, we're standing in, in a, a small city, and we're looking around, and I mean, it's just ruins at this point. And there are stones everywhere, but you can clearly see the markings of a home. Like the walls aren't as high as they once were, but you can see the patterns and the walls at a low level. And we were looking at what most certainly could have happened in this city, in the house that we were standing in as a young boy probably went off to, to meet with this girl or this family. He was ready to take on a bride. And, and what would happen here in this culture, in this time, as we're standing today in this setting, what happened some 2,000 years ago was that this family would go and have a conversation with this other family about marriage. And this boy would, would pursue this woman and his family would pay a price for her to be his bride. And this isn't weird. It was actually quite like necessary. It's not unique. This is what happened because if you think about it, in that time, in that culture, when, when you would lose one family member, you were, you were losing a person who provided. You were losing a person who was a part of your family. You were losing work. And so that would have to get done some way. You maybe hire somebody or use that money to get those resources so things would be easier or get done. And, and after the agreement was made, after one family receives uh, this, this uh, uh, you know, financial like contract, and it was a contract, it was way more legally binding than an engagement is today, the other family would, would head back to their town and they would prepare. They would prepare for this great celebration and union. They would go back to their own city and they would make the arrangements necessary for the ceremony to come. And, and uh, during the engagement, the, the man and the woman, they were legally bound to one another. And uh, the, the receiving family would go back, uh, they would prepare a room. And I'm not talking about they would put sheets down and they would like figure out what curtains and maybe, you know, I would use this candle over here. It's like they were literally putting addition, an addition onto their home, which would take time. It would take a lot of preparation. It would take a lot of digging and moving rocks. It would, I mean, and can you imagine the impatience of the young man? Could you imagine this young man saying, Dad, uh, I know we're building on this addition. Uh, I, you know, I leveled the ground. I think this is good enough. Can I go get her? And he's like, no, son, you can't. We need to prepare this place. We need to prepare this room. We don't just need to level the ground and put up walls. We need to make this home ready. And it is going to take time. And this dad, this dad would want to do it so well, not just because this is a gift to his son, not just because it's a gift to his family, but this, this is a symbol in the city. He wants his home to look good. He wants to prepare a place in just the right way. And so they would build and they would prepare. And, and when the dwelling was ready, 
the young man would head back into town to pick up his bride. And, and there would be a person at the gate of their city with a shofar, which is a horn. And that person at the gate would blast the horn and all of town would know that a groom has showed up at the city gates and all the girls would be giddy and excited. Those who were engaged wondering, is this my, is this my groom? Is this my man? Is he coming to get me? And he would come and he would, he would retrieve his soon-to-be wife. And, and ultimately, the presentation of the bride in that moment would launch a wedding celebration. And in the celebration, it would end with a wedding supper, which could actually last for several days. And this new bride and this new groom, they would depart the, the marriage supper after the celebration, after the feast. At that moment, with full rights and with full privileges and with responsibilities to one another as husband and wife, it's at that moment that they're devoted to each other. Don't miss this. Loyal to each other. Pure. Pure because you are only for each other. You're not for anybody else. And our marriages, those of you who are married, you have to know this, that marriage is a beautiful picture of the purity and unity that is designed for us in our relationship with God. We need to be forever faithful and forever united with God. You know, I love this quote from Andy Stanley. He's a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia. And, and he, he said this, and it just, it's just a real striking comment. He says, purity paves the pathway to intimacy. And as we see this notorious corrupt prostitute trying to pull people into their deceptive corrupt ways, and yet we see the bride, of Christ in pure white linen. Like, we don't have an intimate relationship when corruption is involved. Purity paves the pathway to intimacy. And that's not just about sex. That's not just about marriage. That's not just about relationships. Purity in every area of our lives, it paves a pathway to intimacy with our Heavenly Father. And that's not sexual either. That's close. That's connected. That's unified. That's the way we were designed. You know, the bride and the groom, they're, they're to be pure for each other. They're to be pure for each other in the engagement period, and they're to remain pure and devoted to each other as they're married. You and I, we don't build a life of purity on a foundation of sin. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. You know, we see at the very beginning of this chapter that, that the corrupt, notorious prostitute is pulling people away from how they were created to live, seducing people, promising a satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus. And Paul reminds us, I love this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's what he says. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one with her body? For, for Scripture says the two will become one in flesh. You don't get two ways. The two of you become one. But anyone joined to the Lord is, is one spirit with them. Like we're joined. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin is a person, uh, that a person commits is outside the body, but the, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. 
Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You know what that price was? That price was a person. You know, when we think back 2,000 years ago, how a family would kind of say, hey, thank you for letting my son marry your daughter, and we're going to take care of you this way. You and I were bought with a price. And Jesus says, you can't do this on your own, and I am going to take care of you this way. You could be bought. You can be paid for. And I mean that in the best way. Jesus paid the price for us. He said that, that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when he returns, I guarantee when he returns for his bride, there's going to be an announcement that everybody knows. But right now, you and I are living in Babylon. You and I are living in Babylon, and this world is saturated with corruption and immorality and impurity. It's not easy for you and I to remain faithful in a faithless world. But I'll tell you this, like we don't build a life of purity on a foundation of sin. If you're following Jesus, you were bought with a price. If you're not following Jesus, you can. He loves you and he's standing there with arms wide open saying, I'm willing to pay the debt that you owe. He's willing to pay that price. You know, and some of us, maybe we're just struggling. We're kind of we're kind of trying to figure out, do I walk with Jesus? Do I not walk with Jesus? Even those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, each and every day, opportunity to, to walk a corrupt path or to face impurity, like it, it's, it's just so easily accessible. If you're a note taker, I'd love it if, if you'd write this down. Maybe you have some blanks there with you. Here's, here's three ways for us to respond to impurity. And this is the biggest of deals, okay? And I would encourage you to, to write these three things down. Uh, here they are. We can rationalize uh, when we're confronted with impurity. Uh, and I mean, like, whether confronted or partaking, we might regret it. And when there has been impurity in our lives, we can repent from it. Let me tell you a little bit about this. And I just want to draw a little line here for us because I think, I think this, this, might, uh, this might mean more to some of us than we imagine. I mean, some of us, we, we have sin in our life and we, we rationalize it. That just means we defend it. We don't have a problem with it. We don't understand why anybody else has a problem with it. This is who I am. This is what I want to do. And I don't care. We defend it. We rationalize it. Some of us, when, when we sin and when we, we enter into this impurity, whatever it is, whatever corruption it is, we, we have these moments of regret. And I think regret actually kind of lives on a fence. I think regret lives... It lives on a line because some of our regret says I'm worthless, I'm no good, I'm garbage, I, I, can't, I can't do it, uh, I'm terrible. Uh, some of our regret, we're like, I'm sorry. And, and really some of us were kind of like, I'm, I'm actually sorry that I got caught. And, and we know it's bad, but we'll be back. Some of our regret just kind of leads us back to rationalizing. It leads us back to doing it, right? When we regret, we kind of we have to understand the level of regret we have because some of our regret might be this genuine understanding that that sin in our life is something that we should hate. Scripture talks about us hating sin. And, and when we enter into impurity of any kind, 
God's hope is that we recognize it as sin and that we hate it and that that regret would lead us to repentance. That we would, we would repent, which means to turn and not return. Genuine repentance leads to genuine forgiveness. Look at this, Romans chapter 6, verse 15 says this, What then? Should, should we sin because we're, we're not under the law, but under grace? Absolutely not. I mean, Jesus offers us an abundant amount of grace, but we don't go on sinning. That just cheapens that grace. That makes grace worth less. And I'll tell you this, God's grace is not a transaction. God's grace is given to us for transformation. You're not perfect. You're going to sin. I'm going to sin. Like, we're not perfect. None of us are perfect. We need grace. And, and when we understand that we were bought with a price and we remember Jesus' sacrifice, if we truly get it, like, it's really difficult to waste His grace. And when we truly repent, our sins are genuinely wiped out. Look at Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Therefore, repent and turn back. Like you're heading towards sin. Repent means to turn back, to turn and not return. Turn back so, so that your sins may be wiped out, just wiped out, gone. When it's genuine, Jesus stands there and says, I got it covered. I love you. I forgive you. Let's turn our back to that thing and let's move in a direction that honors your relationship with me. You know, far too many people, far too many people are seduced through the world's offer to satisfy. And this is really a picture of what's happening in all 10 of these verses in chapter 19. You know, we've got a world, we've got Babylon that probably doesn't regret what they've done. They're defending and they're rationalizing. We've got Babylon up here and we have the bride down here. Babylon who is corrupt and the bride who is waiting for this marriage celebration. This is going to be the biggest of deals. You know, far too many people are seduced by the world's offer to satisfy. Babylon and the people of Babylon are chasing a level of satisfaction that is only found in Jesus. And we're going to close our gathering right now today uh, with, with a celebration of praise and thanks. Um, I hope that you have maybe some communion elements with you or near you, or you could just maybe hit pause and go grab something. Um, this is an opportunity for us to say hallelujah because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It's also an opportunity for us to say hallelujah in anticipation for what he will do one day. You see, communion is a celebration of what Jesus has done and yet anticipation for his return. So, the Apostle Paul says, on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he had given thanks. And he broke it and he said, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. A celebration of his sacrifice, anticipation of his one day return for his bride, the church. Take communion whenever you're ready. And uh, let me pray for you. Uh, love you guys. God, thanks for today. Thanks for the opportunity to serve you, to worship you, 
and now to celebrate you. God, be glorified. Uh, give all of these men and women uh, the opportunity to see where they can celebrate you and the courage to run from the corruption of this world. All for your glory, Lord. Thanks for your sacrifice, Jesus. Amen and amen. Take when you're ready. Have a great week.